morning. My name is Dave Kim, and I know there's a rumor going around that I'm the pastor of jokes. <laughs> that is not true, although that title was a little tempting to take. I thought it would, no one would take me seriously for it. So I decided um, <laughs> to instead uh, take the title of um, Community Life and Discipleship here at Cornerstone. And if you have your Bibles with you, I have the privilege to uh, look at God's Word this morning with you. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to me, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verse 9 to 13. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up here on the screen for you. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us the words to pray. That we don't have to be super original or try hard for you to listen to us, but you do so because of your mercy and grace. And Father, we do pray that during this time, your word may speak to our hearts. So that, Father, we in response may love you. And we may pray with genuine loving hearts to you. Show us Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. As a church, we've been going through a series on the Lord's Prayer. And so far, we've covered that Jesus has very particular ways in how he wants us to pray. He gives us a principle in verse 9 when he says, pray then like this. And what he means is pray in this manner. He's setting parameters for his disciples to pray and for us to follow as we pray. And today we're looking at the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. And I'm going to venture to guess, this is just a guess, that many of us here today, we're wrestling with this prayer right now in some shape or fashion. See, you're asking questions like, what is God's will for my life? Which job does he want me to get? Where does he want our family to live? Which, perhaps, which church should we go to? Which ministry should we serve in? Or which person does God want me to marry? Which college should I go to? How much money does he want me to tie? And so, and on and on. And trying to figure out God's will can actually be very, very tough and confusing and sometimes very frustrating. And I'm not sure if this story is uh, true, but I, heard, um, but I once heard that there was once a man who was so tired of trying to figure out God's will for his life that one day he decided to open a Bible right next to his window and let the wind of the Holy Spirit blow through the pages as he places his finger blindly on one verse and he takes that as God's will for his life. So that's exactly what he does. He, on a windy day, he takes his Bible and right next to the window and he's waiting for the winds to blow through as he, placed, as he blindly places his finger on a verse and then he reads the following. And Judas went and handed himself. Well, that can't be right. He, so he tries again. Go and do likewise. So he tries a third time. What you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, Jesus is telling, this is not the way to figure out God's will, by the way. 
Jesus is telling us here to learn to pray this prayer because there is a proper way to pray for God's will. And the proper way actually brings more refreshment and peace instead of increasing our anxiety um, like this man. So here's the main point that I want to make from our passage today. When we get a glimpse of God's will for us, our hearts become eager to pray, not my will, but yours be done. When we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's will for us, for you, our hearts become eager. Nobody has to force us to pray, not my will, but yours be done. I want to look at three, uh, I want to make three observations about this particular passage, petition, with you. First, I want to look at the content of the petition. What is Jesus teaching us to pray about this prayer? I want to look at the challenge. Why is it so hard to pray this prayer? And thirdly, I want to look at the commitment of the petitioner. Sit our eyes and focus on the one who prayed this prayer. So, first, the content of the prayer. What is Jesus telling us to pray for when he says to pray for God's will to be done? What is God's will? Well, when the Bible talks about God's will, it tells us that there, it tells us that there are two aspects of God's will. God, God has a secret will, and He has a revealed will. So let's look at these briefly to determine which one is Jesus, Jesus is calling us to pray for. So first, the secret will of God. What is the secret will of God? Well, it's a secret, so I can't tell you. <laughs> Okay, fine, I'll tell you. Um, the secret will of God is his sovereignty. See, God is in control of everything in the world, and he plans everything as he sees fit in order to accomplish his goal of bringing glory to himself. The secret will of God is the behind the scenes of everything that happens throughout history and in the known universe that we may not be able to see or know. Psalm 135 verse 6 put it like this. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. But there's actually a little more. It's not just creation that's part of God's secret will, but people are included in this secret will. See, God orchestrates all people and countries and nations and groups and tribes and tongues, whether they know it or not, to bring about his glory. Meaning that at the end of the day, the history of man is only setting the stage for God to shine. And God is the master orchestrator behind all of life and all of circumstances, those which he decrees and allows to happen in this world. See, the secret will of God are God's own reasons for directing the world as he sees fit. And through his directing, he will accomplish to do what, that which he desires. But there's another way to look at God's secret will, and it's like this. Take the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The story goes that he was born with a shiny red nose, and sadly all the other reindeers used to laugh and call him names, and they never let poor old Rudolph play in any reindeer games. Thank you. <laughs> now, how much does Rudolph know at this point in the story that in the forecast there would be a foggy night brewing, so foggy that even someone as skilled as Santa Claus could not fly it, or I would even venture to guess a TPS grad. <laughs> How much does he know that his whole life has been leading up to this one night to keep Christmas alive? Here's the answer. He doesn't. 
But you know who does? The author of the story, the people who sing the story, the people who sing and bring the story from one step, step to step to completion. Because see, when an author writes a story, the character of that story only knows as much as the author reveals it to them. And a good author is one who reveals things at the appropriate time. Likewise, the way we know the secret, secret will of God is not through a magic eight ball where we have to shake the Bible. It's not written in the stars for you to discover through a telescope. It's not in your alphabet soup or your morning cereal. But it is actually to encounter it as God, the master, orchestrator, the storyteller, unfolds it in your life. See, God is the perfect author who knows, knowing everything, he reveals them to us at the right time. So how do you know whether God wants you to be a lawyer or a doctor, whether he wants you to be, go to St. Mary's College or CSM, whether he wants you to move to Florida or North Carolina, Red House or Blue House, two kids or four kids, Mary, John or Jimmy, Sally or Molly? Here's how you know. You encounter the secret will of God for your life as you live life. And I know this is a little bit anticlimactic answer here. And maybe there are some people here who've had premonitions on who they're going to marry and it actually came true or what kind of job you're going to have and it actually came true. But the fact of the matter is that you knew who your spouse would be the moment you were on the altar and you said, I do. There was no other moment more sure of than that very moment when you said, I do. See, you discover or encounter the secret will of God, what he wants for your life, as God moves you along people and opportunities and circumstances and situations and hardships and struggles and pains and joys, loss and success, all in the day-to-day life. Then maybe you're sitting here thinking, if that's true, then what's the point of praying about these things at all? What good is praying for them if we'll just encounter them through life? And here's why. Because God has decreed that his secret will will be accomplished through the very prayers of his people. Let me repeat that because this is amazing, mind-blowing truth and promise of Scripture. God has made up his mind to bring about everything for his glory and for the good in your life through your very prayers. He has made this promise that he will work through the very prayers of his people. So whether we pray for missionaries overseas to bring many to salvation, or pray for his secret will to reveal to us which job should take, uh, we should take or which person we should marry, our prayers are the very means by which he accomplishes his good work. This is the secret will of God. So as a quick application of this, church, pray. Pray for God's secret will. See, your prayers will be answered because, and they also make a difference because that's how God has vowed to work in this world. But if you look at the context of the Lord's Prayer, I'm more and more convinced that Jesus is teaching us to pray not so much for God's secret will, but His revealed will. The second type of God's uh, will is the revealed will of God. And the revealed will of God are His commandments for, uh, given to us in His very Word. And all throughout Scripture, we find many passages describing the manner in which God wants us to live. He may not tell us who we should marry, 
but he does tell us what kind of person we should marry, a Christian. See, he wants us to also be thankful in all things, and he wants us to be joyful in all circumstances. He wants us to be content when we, content when we, receive, uh, what we receive. He wants us to be humble, loving, and patient, and kind, and merciful, and we can fill our remaining time just naming things that God wants us to be like and wants us to do. So let me just summarize God's revealed will with just one word, holiness, holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul tells us this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, holiness is being set apart. It's living by a different set of rules and motivation that makes one stand out from the crowd. And the reason Paul uses sexual immorality as an example is because during those times, to have uh, to be sexually active and for married men to have more than one partner was actually very normal. And we could argue that we live in very similar times today. So Paul is saying that this is how you pursue holiness. Let me just pick one area of life, sexuality. When the world chooses to satisfy their sexual appetite by any means, you, Christian, should stand out by choosing to keep sexuality within the boundaries of God's word. See, this principle of seeking holiness is not choosing to live conservatively or traditionally or modestly, but self-sacrificially and mindful of God's word. So Jesus is teaching us the principle that when you pray, pray for your holiness because that is God's will for you. See, Jesus, the master of prayer, he gives us the principle that before we ask what we want from God, give us their daily bread, he tells us to first ask what God for God to do what he wants with us. See, before asking for daily bread, Jesus teaches us to pray for godly traits. Before asking for physical needs, he teaches us to ask for spiritual needs. Before asking for our glorification, we're taught to ask for our sanctification and selflessness. So here, it leads me to ask this question. Church, how often do you pray for your holiness? Or better yet, Maybe you're wondering, what does it mean to pray for your holiness? What does it mean to pray for holiness? Which leads me to, which leads us to our second point, the challenge of this prayer, this prayer. Jesus teaches us that we're to pray for God's will to be done just like it is done in heaven. Why would he add this addition at the end, as it is in heaven? And here's why. Because there's a confession behind this prayer And it's this, God, if I'm honest, your revealed will is not being done on earth, let alone my life. His will is not being done in our life. We don't want to do that. Whether you're a Christian or not, we often have a mentality that the purpose of prayer is to bend God's will to our will. We think that if we pray hard enough, genuinely enough, or if we get more voices to pray for, for us, if we get lots of Facebook likes uh, on, our, on our Facebook, 
if we make perhaps a logical case to God, or maybe if we offer God something that He just cannot refuse, He will do what we want. You could say that our default is condition is to pray the opposite of what Jesus, Jesus is teaching us to pray for. Our default is to pray for heaven to do the will of earth. There was once a boy who was taught in Sunday school that if he prayed to God in Jesus' name, whatever whatever he asks will be given. So he goes home that day, and before he he goes to bed, he kneels down and he prays. Dear Jesus, I would like a new bike. Could you please leave it outside the house by tomorrow morning? In Jesus' name, amen. The next day, he goes outside, but no bike. Later that evening, he thinks that he needs to name it and claim it. Maybe Jesus didn't know which bike to get him. So later that night, before bed, he prays again. Dear Jesus, maybe you didn't know which bike to get me. I would like an XT500 Blue Mountain bike right outside my house by 8.30 or 8.45 at the latest. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. The next morning comes and still no bike. Later that day, he has an idea. The boy goes to a local pawn shop and buys a statue of the Virgin Mary. He digs a hole and buries it deep in his backyard. And later that night, he kneels down for the third time to pray, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mom again, (laughs) I want an XT500 mountain bike by tomorrow morning at 8.30. But isn't it true that we often do the same? We fail to recognize that the point of prayer is to bend our will to God instead of the other way. See, there's a recognition that in heaven, Jesus is pointing us, reminding us that in heaven, God's will is the supreme desire sought after. In heaven, there is nothing more important than the desire to do God's will. So when we pray... uh, when we pray for God, that God's will of sanctification be done in us as it is done in heaven, we first need to confess and give God permission to undo our wills. See, we need to confess that we need to become less and He needs to be greater. Because this particular petition, your will be done, is a petition for participation in God's redemptive work in the world, through us. But church, be very careful because praying for holiness is not praying to be a better moral person. See, praying for holiness is not asking God to help us start doing things and stop doing other things, but it's actually more. Praying for holiness is a petition for God to be near to us, for Him to fill our thoughts and our hearts and our emotions and all of our being. Simply put, it is a request to never be content in our character on this earth until we've been made perfectly in the image of Christ in heaven. Let me give you quick examples of this. A moral person will pray to be more patient for the other guy, more than the other guy, and will be content until the next guy, next person comes along. But a holy person is quick to drop to their knees and recognize that they're not patient with the world. And he prays for forgiveness in his lack of patience towards all people. Is never content. A moral person will pray in admiration of Jesus' life. A holy person prays for more. He prays to be like Christ and to die to himself just as Christ did for us. 
A moral person will pray to master and do God's word. But a holy person prays for more. He prays to be mastered by God's word in every area of his life. A moral person prays for the minimum strength to do God's will in their life. But a holy person prays for more. He prays that God will be their life. Praying for holiness in our life is to pray for constant dissatisfaction with the way that we are. And we're constantly asking our Heavenly Father to grow us, to make us different, to never let us settle in our faith. But as David in Psalm 119 so beautifully put it, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Try me and know my thoughts. See, this is a hard prayer. This is a prayer for God to make us uncomfortable to challenge us, to not let us settle in our faith, but to bring us closer and closer to perfection as it is in heaven. Which leads me to ask the next question, or the same question. Church, how fervently do you pray to God for you to be his primary agent for his kingdom to come? During my high school years, one Sunday we had a missionary guest speaker come in and after his sermon, he was leading us in prayer. And he, the first top prayer topic he wanted us to pray for was for the gospel to be translated in many languages. And I prayed for those translators. Oh, I prayed. My eyes were getting watery. I prayed for the protection, for power, for the witnessing, and for those words and wisdom. And then he told us to pray that if, it was, that if it was God's will, that those missionaries would bear much fruit. And I prayed, and this time my, ears could not, my, my eyes could not contain the tears and everything let loose. And I prayed for their powerful witness and their, and their life and their spouses and their families, that they would bring thousands to Christ. And then the missionary led us to pray that if it was God's will to send us as missionaries to an unreached country. And I couldn't pray for that. Because what if it became true? So I remained silent. And to this day, I wish I had been able to pick and pray for an unreached country because in my lack of preference, God sent me to seminary. So if you think that praying for a specific thing is dangerous, friends, leaving the space empty might be more dangerous. Um, but can you relate to this fear? That we're hesitant to pray, God, your will be done in my life. Whatever you want me to do, whoever you want me to love, whatever the cause, wherever you want me to serve, let your will be done because we're so afraid that he might, call us, he might call us to do something that we don't want to do. We're afraid to trust that he knows what's good for us and we avoid praying for God to try us, to test us, to refine us, to push us all together because we simply don't trust Him. We have a different picture of what we want our life to be, and it's good enough. And if you're here this morning, whether you've been a Christian for many years, struggling with this prayer, or just exploring the faith and wrestling through the question of, can I trust God for my happiness? We're so glad that, I'm so glad that you're here. The Bible tells us that you can trust God for your happiness. But I want to suggest to you that there's a more important question we ought to ask first, and that is this. How do we know that God's will is better than mine? How can we trust that God's will for us is good and better than the ones that we have for ourselves? Which leads us to our last point. 
The reason we know is because of the commitment of the petitioner. The natural desire of every human being is to seek happiness and fulfillment. In Genesis 3, it tells us the story that Adam and Eve preferred to live a my will be done as opposed to a thy will be done life. And ever since then, human happiness and fulfillment was capped by sickness and death. And in other words, our joy and happiness in life has an expiration date brought by sickness and death from the moment we breathe. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that that is true. Ezekiel J. Emanuel, who is actually not a Christian, who is an oncologist and vice provost at UPenn in Philadelphia, he wrote this very interesting article called, Why I Hope to Die at 75. And he makes the practical, philosophical, and statistical case that because every person's health is subject to decay and death, our best hope should be only to live to 75. He mentions that we should, ask, we should not ask for more and we should be content with this reality because past 75, statistics, statistics show that all you're doing is just prolonging your suffering. He mentions that it would be nice if we could maintain function and live forever, but that's not possible. So we ought to adjust our expectations of happiness and contentment. And Dr. Emmanuel is right if death is the end of all. See, the only option, if, if he's right, the only option we have on this earth is to live with the mindset of, my will be done. I mean, why shouldn't you pursue your happiness, your will? Because there's nothing better. Because you see, death is the end of all. So why should you listen to anybody else? Why should, should you live by anybody's will? Because no other option is available. Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, who passed away a few years ago, back in 2003, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and many years of fighting, um, uh, he died eight years later, which is already an anomaly for uh, people with such a disease. But before he died, he was actually interviewed, interviewed for a documentary, and someone asked him, asked him, what comes to mind when you think about death? And Steve Jobs, he gives an amazing answer. He says this, Sometimes I believe in God. Sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50, maybe. Maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife. That when you die, that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you accumulated, somehow it lives on. Steve Jobs is a representative voice for every human heart that longs that there was another way another more powerful will that can defeat death and bliss because human wills are capped and too weak to maintain life. And the good news of the gospel is that this innate desire for more, for an afterlife, for the wisdom we've accrued to not be lost and the beauty that we've experienced to remain, the love that we've received, the scriptures do teach us that these things do all go all on because of Jesus. And when we place our trust in him, we have a better will to live by. See, when we place our trust in him, he shows us that God's will for us is not to die but live. And when we see that God's will for us is not to die but find life, all because his will for his son was to die our grip on our wills turn loose. 
See, the amazing thing about this petition, your will be done, is that Jesus himself was the most committed prayer. See, from, death to, from birth to death, Jesus knew God's will for him was to die, and yet he lived God's will for mankind on earth. And if there was anybody on earth that had the right to say, my will be done, it was Jesus. And he would have had the right to say, to pray such prayer because he was God himself, but also because he lived a perfect life of obedience. I mean, he was the only human being that when Satan tempted him to bend the knee, he chose to have no other gods before him. That when the Pharisees and religious leaders worshipped gold coins, Jesus refused to worship carved images. And when people called God's name in prayer to gain public fame, Jesus' words to God were never empty nor vain, but filled with praise and thanksgiving. See, Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. He was never selfish with his Sundays. He never tried to bring himself rest and get away from people, but rather he was always with people. He was the agent by which rest and restoration uh, came through. Jesus was the perfect son. His greatest joy was to honor the Father, and he did nothing apart from his Father's will. And though he could have raised an army and fought back against those who tried to kill him, Jesus goes beyond and gives his life for many. And though the people of God rejected him and committed adultery against him, Jesus stays faithful to the church, and he vows to never abandon her. See, our Lord never lied. He always told the truth. And he never coveted earthly things, but his heart overflowed with generosity and was ready to share heavenly blessings with his neighbor. For Jesus to have asked for, God's, for, for his will to be done would have spared one life. When he prays for his Father's will, he's asking for better for the world to live. See, Jesus to have asked for his will would have made him a very influential teacher in the known world, but when he prays that his Father's will be done, he becomes the Savior of history. Jesus to have asked for his will would have granted him just a bit longer to live on earth, but by asking for his Father's will, he receives an eternal life and glory. And in his last hours, As he faces the wrath of God and his heart is just overwhelmed with judgment that is about to fall on him. And as he sees that the road that his father is leading towards involves a cross, Jesus is still committed for not his will, though he had the right to, but God's will be done. All because Jesus knew. Jesus had no reason to distrust that his father is good and his plans are better. See, Jesus knew that the cross was not the end of God's will. But behind it was great glory awaiting him. Jesus shows us that the will of the Father for his children, for you and me, for the church, is not evil, but good. Not death, but life. And Jesus shows us that those whom the Father loves, come what may, they're secure in his will and grip tightly in his love. So church, You have the same trustworthy, good Father whose main will is to bring you a far greater good than we could bring for ourselves. Not only that, you have a perfect Savior whose will is to bring us into eternal relationship with Him, and He has secured that for us. And in faith, we have the help of the Holy Spirit who is constantly working all things to bring us into completion. So pray. Pray because God hears us. 
pray that history would be brought to a close, to see all nations rejoice in the glory of God, to see Christ honor and as king in every human heart, Satan to be bound, evil to be vanquished, cancer to be a distant memory, death to be old news, for the scars of life's brokenness to disappear, to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Pray to see new Jerusalem and heaven finally once and for all come on earth and let the will of our God reign forever with his people. Church, pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven today because it surely is coming. It is far better and it's coming soon. Let's pray. Why don't we take a minute to respond in prayer and if there's something that in your heart you have not been willing to pray, your will be done. Take this time to confess and ask God to show you something better than your will. Let's pray. Father, you give us a better way. You give us a better will, a better purpose for our life. And so many times we doubt you. But in Christ, you show us that there's far greater things ahead. And Lord, though at times it feels like you are trying to steal our joy, the reality is you're trying to give it to us. We thank you for Jesus, who is a far greater gift than we deserve. Lord, we do pray that your will be done on earth, in our hearts, in our lives, in our marriages, in our children, in our church, in our workplaces. Because, Lord, your will lasts and is so much better. Help us see that. Help us see that, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.